we know it wasn't really the war to end all wars. The European Union today and the peace that we have in Europe today is partly a response to the memory of what Europe did to itself in World War I. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, we'll look back a hundred years at the sites you can visit in the Balkans and in Britain to help you understand how the First World War changed Europe and to see how local communities continue to honor their departed soldiers. And they're not forgotten. We have a ceremony every year, and people pass by the memorial every day. Memorial Day weekend is also when Americans love to hit the road. Jane and Michael Stern share their favorite comfort food stops in the South and recommend where you can tap into the local scene. Our greatest tip is go get a haircut because barbers in small towns know everything and... And love to talk about it. And love to talk about it. Explore World War I in Britain and the Balkans and enjoy Southern American road food. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A road trip is a great American rite of summer. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll whet our appetites for seeing our own country while searching out the tastiest comfort food Southern style with Jane and Michael Stern. They've just updated their road food guide, and they'll take your calls at 877-333-7425 for mouth-watering tips for finding America's best fried chicken, barbecued oysters, and other local favorites that'll spice up a road trip across the South. This year, Memorial Day comes just a few weeks before the 100th anniversary of the events that kicked off the First World War. Millions died during more than four years of fighting in a series of conflicts that reshaped the global political map. In just a bit, we'll look into the sites in the Balkans that you can visit today, in the corner of Europe where it all started. Let's open with a look at World War I sites in Great Britain, a nation that has promised to never forget. Joining us for a look at what you can see in this centennial year relating to World War I in Britain are Blue Badge Guides Tom Hooper and Gillian Chadwick. They're both from London. And Roy Nichols, he's a guide and historian who lives in Dorset in the south of England. Tom, Gillian, Roy, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Rick. Hello. You're very welcome. So the, the Western Front was the, the uh, scene of unprecedented slaughter, and Britain was right in there with it. How is England remembering this 100th anniversary of World War I? Well, there's a whole series of commemorations beginning this year, 2014, and it'll go right through until 2018, commemorating, because it isn't a celebration, commemorating the various battles and their progression through the years. Are there traditions that, that live on to this day that remember certain wars? I, I know I've been in London when people are wearing poppies and this sort of thing. By far, the most clear commemoration is in November, and it's the National Remembrance Day closest to 11th of November, the Sunday. Mm-hmm. This year's will be really big, and the poppy is the symbol of remembrance. A Canadian colonel died of pneumonia towards the end of World War I. He wrote this poem called In Flanders Fields, and he noticed that the poppies grew amongst the disturbed soil of the graves, and it's become the great symbol of remembrance and respect. There are poppy wreaths on every memorial all over the country, and every village has its own, especially First World War, memorial with the names of those killed. So when you're, if you're in Britain in November, you're likely to see people yeah. wearing poppies. You're likely to see from probably October onwards, yeah. really. Yeah. Something that's really moving is what they do at Westminster Abbey, all around the, the grass around the abbey. They have miniature crosses with poppies on ah. and it looks like a war cemetery in miniature. Now Gillian Chadwick, when I'm in London, a very powerful memorial is, is sort of an understated memorial, the Cenopath right there on, on Whitehall. Mm-hmm. Describe that. It's uh, in the middle of the, the street. It has the flags of the Royal Air Force, the Navy and the Army and that's the focus during the Sunday commemoration. Always a member of the Royal Family comes uh, laser wreath and representatives of all the regiments, plus the Prime Minister. Now, most war memorials that I can recall have some association with the church or, or, or with God, but this cenotaph has no religious uh, no. iconography no, on it. From why, why a Greek is that? word meaning empty oh. tomb. Empty tomb. Yes. The unknown warrior in Arlington, unknown soldier, but we call unknown warrior, and um, here is the equivalent. He's buried in Westminster Abbey. And then there were so many different people fighting for Britain that you don't even yes. know for sure what his, what his religion might have been. No. He's completely anonymous. And that, is that the reason the cenotaph is um, yes. not yes. in a particular yeah. religion? Quite deliberately mm-hmm. chosen that way. There is one additional major thing this year. The last of the remembrance services in Flanders took place last year, and they brought soil from each of the places uh, over to England, and they're opening a memorial garden in London 
which will be the focus of Memorial. It is hard to fathom. It's hard for an American to fathom losing nearly a million people in a war, especially when your population is one quarter our Mm. population. How can we get our brains around that? And I think it still resonates down the years because I come from a family of so many where both my grandfathers fought in the First World War and their stories and their experience filtered down to my father, who was also a World War II veteran. Mm-hmm. And he had the strange paradox of actually seeing World War I as more tragic and more important in his own way than his own fighting throughout the Second World War. I think it made such a lasting appearance, impression on people. It did. And this was a war during, that everybody jumped into. It was the war to end yeah. all wars. It was almost a yeah. celebratory war. So, and, and, we, and we tend to, to start with. To start with, yeah. And, and, we, tend to see it, and yeah. we tend to see it in the perspective of the 20s and 30s, that post-war period when mm-hmm. disillusionment set in. But at the time, in 1914, really right through almost until the, the end of the war, mm-hmm. there was still popular support amongst politicians mm-hmm. and amongst the population for this war. A little village called Stanton. Mm-hmm. And in the church the screen which separates the congregation from the altar was a memorial to those people who died, the young men particularly who died in the village in World War I. And every Sunday when they go to church, they would be faced with this memorial. That's the strength of the grief afterwards. So in a little village, anywhere in England really, yeah. you would have on the screen by the altar in the front of the church the names of it's, the boys it's the whole died. It's the whole screen. The whole screen. Memorial. Mm. This is one thing I do whenever I'm traveling in Britain or France is, or Germany is I go to the, in the town, I look for the World War I uh, memorial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the smallest town, you'll have 50, 60 names on that, even the smallest mm-hmm. village. And you just, there was not a family that escaped World War One in these no. major countries. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're uh, remembering World War One, a hundred years after it started, with uh, three English tour guides, Tom Hooper, Gillian Chadwick, and Roy Nichols. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Donna's calling in from Oldsmar, Florida. Donna, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Um, my question is, what special exhibits will be open during the 100th anniversary? Where and when will they take place? The Imperial War Museum in London has got special exhibitions commemorating the 100th anniversary. Uh, this is art exhibitions, World War One art. Uh, I think there's a new gallery. There is a new gallery. Yeah, there's a new gallery. At completely. the Imperial War Museum? Yes. That's a great visit yeah. anyways, anytime, especially oh, yeah, for World War One. Yeah. And now will be an even more exciting year to visit Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Anything else going on? I think you can also probably expect to see it in theatre, Donna, the going to be productions of a number of plays. War Horse is the obvious one in London. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think you can expect to see productions of things like, oh, what a lovely war. I understand the uh, English National Ballet is doing Lest We Forget. That's that's also. Mm -hmm. And I think all around the country there will be particular emphasis on trying to show people how the impact of World War One was and what it meant at the time. You know, Donna, I would think anywhere you go in England, you'll find photo exhibits and, and local memorials, the, the, the museums, the history museums will have special yeah. exhibits mm-hmm. and so on. And while you're in London, there'll be lots going on. The Tate Modern has the 100 Years Later uh, exhibit. If you want to do some research in a spare moment, the National Archives have just put one and a half million letters from World War One on view. Wow, online. that's fascinating. Where is that yeah. now? National Archives. The National Archives, that would be something. Mm. Donna, thanks for your call. Thank you. And Ellie's on the line in Los Angeles, California. Ellie, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. I traveled in England last September, and I was really deeply moved by the World War I memorials in every village. Um, Tom just mentioned Stanton, and I remember when I was there that my host said that every male resident in that village went off to fight, and not a single one returned. Could the guide say a bit more about how the women in the communities coped with such a shocking and devastating loss? Well, it was the first time that women had a role in the workplace because there were so few men, young men around, so few men around that they had to take on much of the role that the men had taken beforehand. And, of course, this was very, very new in British society. Mm-hmm. So working in factories, on the buses, on the trains, all of these sort of roles were taken over. And I think children probably and, grew up very, very early. And, and in fact, some of the roles taken over by children as well. If my memory serves me correct, the Imperial War Museum is more than just your typical war museum that celebrates big guns, but yeah. it talks about the social impact of yes. a war yeah. Yeah. and the impact on women yeah. and children and the aftermath of the yeah. war. It humanizes it. And I think the role of women uh, really has been recognized because quite close to the cenotaph in Whitehall is the memorial to the role of women in war. That- 
It's one new, of the most... That's a new memorial, isn't it? It is. It's Second World War. Second World War. But yeah. it is that recognition that women had a role to play in wartime. Mm. And, you know, when you do walk around London, you find memorials. There's this new yes. women's memorial to, to women who have yep. been yes. heroic in the wars, World yeah. War II or World War I. Battle of Britain, down on the embankment, mm. which is that's the right. most beautiful mm. memorial I've ever seen. There's even a memorial to the animals. There yes. is. Animals yeah. right. Yeah. Park what, Lane. What, Park Lane, yes. yeah. And mm. I just, whenever I walk around London, I pay attention to the memorials uh-huh. because London is very good at remembering yeah. its heritage. One of the um, memorials to the artillery corps had a dead soldier sculpted by the side of it, and it caused complete outrage afterwards because people couldn't deal with the idea of having the dead person there. It was more elevated to the glorious dead. And, Isn't that yeah. powerful? What yeah. memorial is that? That's the artillery memorial, which is Hyde Park Corner. Corner. Yeah, Hyde Park, Park Corner. Corner I think. Ellie, thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're, we're considering how Britain is remembering World War I 100 years after its outbreak. Tom Hooper, uh, Gillian Chadwick, Roy Nichols, as Britain looks back 100 years after World War I, just for all of our listeners who may be pondering a trip to Britain in, in this coming year, what's a site or an experience or a memorial that has a particular uh, emotional impact on you considering how Britain has suffered through these, these amazing wars? Uh, Tom Hooper? Uh, because I live in London, it definitely has to be the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior or the Grave of the Unknown Warrior. The Cenotaph? The, in Westminster Abbey. Oh, in Westminster the grave Abbey. Itself. When you read about how this was done, it brings tears to the eyes every time. Gillian mm. Chadwick? Uh, for me, it's definitely the miniature war cemetery that's laid out every year around Westminster Abbey with miniature crosses and poppies representing mm. all of the regimental deaths. And that's every year? Every year. In November? Yeah, all around Armistice Day. So the the epicenter of all of this memorializing is Westminster Abbey. Absolutely, yes. And Roy Nichols. For me, it's the memorial I see virtually every day when I'm at home in my own village in Dorset, Shillingstone. There was a, a campaign after the war to try and decide which community in Britain gave most of its young men. Um, not a competition in the true sense, but it was decided in the end that Shillingstone actually gave more of its young men per capita per capita than any other community wow. in the whole of the United Kingdom. And 100 years later, they're not forgotten. And they're not forgotten. And we have a ceremony every year, and people pass by the, the memorial every day. Well, 100 years after the war that was heralded as the war to end all wars, we're still fighting wars, but let's hope yeah. we can uh, look at these memorials and remember and, and maybe make the promise of World War I someday come true. Yes. Tom Hooper, Julian Chadwick, Ray Nichols, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we'll consider World War I sites that you can visit in the Balkans, where on June 28, 1914, the shot heard around the world set it all in motion. That's when the heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was assassinated in Sarajevo. History comes to life when you travel with Rick Steves. Zovem se Marijan Krišković i dolazim sa predivne hrvatske sredozemne obale i putujem sa Rikom Stevesom. So that was Croatian. What it was is uh, my name is Marijan Krišković. I come from the wonderful Croatian Mediterranean coast and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. 
once again in Croatian. Zovem se Marjan Krišković i dolazim sa predivne hrvatske sredozemne obale i putujem s Rikom Stevesom. We're re-examining the events of the First World War in its centennial year, and the Balkans played a key role in the outbreak of that conflict. Sarajevo was the scene of the assassination that led the Austro-Hungarian Empire to declare war on Serbia. And the rest, as they say, is history. History you can better appreciate when you visit the sites where world-changing events happened just a few generations ago. Joining us to help us grasp the events of a hundred years ago in former Yugoslavia is Amir Telebacirovic. Amir's a journalist from Sarajevo, and he's been with us previously on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about the events he survived during the Bosnian War of the 1990s. He's joined by Ben Curtis. Ben's a political science professor at Seattle University, and he also leads tours in the Balkans. Ben is also the author of The Habsburgs, History of the Dynasty, and The Traveler's History of Croatia. We'll also take your calls at 877-333-7425. Amir and Ben, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Ben, first of all, when you think of Yugoslavia and former Yugoslavia, you think about the shot that was heard around the world. What is that, and why does that matter? Right, so imagine the scene, August 1914, or June 1914. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who is the heir to the throne of the Habsburg Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Balkans, former Yugoslavia at that time, were positioned with jockeying between Bulgaria and Serbia and Austria-Hungary. Everybody wanted influence, and he comes down there to Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia-Herzegovina, and he's planting the Austro-Hungarian flag. He's saying, this is our territory. But some Serbian radicals didn't want him there, they knew that he was an authoritarian, kind of imperialist, and so they set out to kill him on that day. He actually survived more than one assassination attempt, and the guy that finally got him, Gavrilo Princip, who was a Bosnian Serb radical, had one chance earlier in the day to kill him, chickened out, and then through the, a mistake of the Archduke's chauffeur, who took a different route in Sarajevo, he passed by Princip again. That's when Princip actually killed the Archduke and killed the Archduke's wife. And that became the pretext for Austria-Hungary to declare war against Serbia, which exploded into World War I. And because at that time there was such an intertangled web of alliances and treaties, and the the Serbs were Slavic, like Mm. the Russians, so Mm. the Russians sided with the Serbs, the Germans seemed to want a war going on, so they gave Austria this blank check of support, Mm -hmm. and then bam, 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 all of a sudden everybody is embroiled. And in fact, it all starts off, I think, with with, uh, Germany invading France, just because of all of these crazy alliances. Now, Amir... Princip, P-R-I-N-C-I-P. He's the guy, the, the terrorist, the freedom fighter, the patriot, the guy who wanted to create a Yugoslavia, uh, a union of the South Slav people free from uh, German and Habsburg domination. He killed the Prince Charles of the Habsburgs, uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand. What do people today think of Princip in Sarajevo and in Bosnia? Uh, by the way, he killed uh, his wife too, Sophia. That's right. Yeah. So, so it would have been Real it would have been the equivalent in our generation mm-hmm. of uh, Prince Charles and and Lady Diana going yeah. down. I mean, uh, down or to maybe even like Romanovs in Russia or yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing way. thing mm-hmm. to think about, and and the more we are up on that as we visit, the more exciting it is. But today, a hundred years later, what's the feeling about Princip? Is he sort of kept quiet, or do people celebrate him, or is there any controversy about was he good or bad? There is. I would say, unfortunately, there is, because it's related to everyday politics. For many, for example, Bosnian Serbs, especially Bosnian Serb politicians and historians, but not only uh, for Bosnian Serbs in the state of Serbia, too, he's uh, viewed as a hero, as a freedom fighter, etc. And at the same time, well, not all of them, but for many of them, nothing is black and white in 100% mm-hmm. in the Balkans. At the same time, for many non-Serbs in Bosnia and in the region, he's been viewed as a terrorist, assassin, etc. So we can say that... It's really tricky, you know, we can say that it's a bit of both. But there's a bridge named after the assassin in uh, Syria? It was. Actually, bridge is from the 17th century. So uh-huh. bridge had its own original name. It was political idea to name bridge after him. That happened after the World War One, after establishment of the first Yugoslavia, it was, which was kingdom, it was monarchy, right. ruled by the Serbian royal dynasty of Karadjordjevic. Until the World War II, then Yugoslavia fell apart. After World War II, new Yugoslavia emerged, which was the socialist and communist state, but they decided to keep the same name after him. Now, interesting part in two different Yugoslavias, kingdom, uh, more dominant by Serbia, he was viewed as a Serb national hero. In communist times, he was viewed as a southern Slavic proletarian hero, like he was struggling against Austrian-Hungarian imperialism, as it was called with typical communist vocabulary. 
Nowadays, the bridge is named Latin Bridge, which was the original name from the 17th century. Okay, so it's a, it's a charged issue, what yeah. you call the bridge in regards to the name of the assassin. The bizarre thing is the street where it happened. The situation of that street shows how these things politically uh, divide the entire Balkans, how they change. For example, name of that street uh, was Apelskay, and it was getting connected, talking about Habsburg time, getting connected to the street of Franz Josef, which was, who was Kaiser, the ruler right. of Bosnia at that time. After the World War One, it was named into the street of Petar Karadjordjevic, who was a Serbian prince. In World War II, when Nazis occupied Sarajevo, it was named Adolf Hitler Street. I believe that Sarajevo had Adolf Hitler Street from 1941 to 1945. Wow. Then when Tito's partisans liberated the city, they renamed the same street. Uh, named after one Yugoslav general, Stepa Stepanovic. And nowadays, after the last war and collapse of the old Yugoslavia, uh, it's named after the Kulinban, who happened to be one of the medieval Bosnian um, kings who is uh, culturally and politically related wow. neither to Croatia, nor Serbia, nor Turkey, nor Austria, just to Bosnia. How long it will remain like that <laughs> depends <laughs> on the future elections and future occupations. You know, this, I've, I've lived all my life here in Seattle, and I can't remember changing the name of a street for political reasons. Uh, well, imagine the company that is uh, producing these uh, streets. these signs. Uh, like, yeah, like <laughs> how much money they can make, you know. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning a little bit about history. will help our sightseeing in former Yugoslavia. Ben, it seems like Princep wanted to create a state uniting the South Slavs. Is that actually what happened long after he did his dirty deed? Right. Well, the so the shot that killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand was eventually precipitated the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And when the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed, what do you get out of that but the new Yugoslavia, the kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes in 1918. So hmm. in a way, Princip got what, what he wanted. died for. Yeah. And what does Yugoslavia mean literally? South Slavs. So the land of the South Slavs. Land of the South, South Slavs. We're taking a close look at the events of World War I right now on Travel with Rick Steves and the sites in the Balkans associated with the events of 100 years ago that you can visit today to better appreciate our history. Our guests are journalist Amir Telebacirovic from Sarajevo, and political science professor Ben Curtis from Seattle University. We have links to Ben's books about the Habsburgs and his Traveler's History of Croatia. You'll find them in this week's show details, and that's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. And Paul's on the line in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Paul, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call. My um, family comes from, on my mom's side, comes from what was at that time southern Hungary and is now northern Yugoslavia. My grandfather was born near Novi Sad in the Vojvodina. And family lore has it that he was in Sarajevo on that day, June 28, 1914. Many of the people who heard the story directly from him are now dead, so it's hard to say. But that's the, that's the story. So we're interested in going over there this summer, and I'm wondering if you have any, um, are there notable dates or interesting events that are going on that, that we could use to uh, plan our trip? Sort of celebrating the 100th, or remembering the 100th anniversary of the uh, assassination that started World War I. Family history touring. Yeah, there are things that uh, visitors can see in relation to that particular event and everything around it. First is a corner where it happened, or as some people, local people in Syria would ironically say, there's a corner where the driver of the Franz Ferdinand and Sophia Ferdinand lost his driving license forever because of the wrong turn. Uh, although they say like he was supposed to turn there because uh, in the previous failed assassination, the uh, one Austrian officer was wounded. So maybe they wanted to change the route, according to some sources, to visit this wounded officer in the hospital. So that's why they turned there. But then confusion came because they were not sure whether they should continue the same street or stop. And it gave Princip the best chance. So literally corner from where he was shooting now is marked. And because of what I mentioned earlier, this political sensitivity, they decided not to use the terms like um, neither hero nor terrorist nor assassin. Just simply uh, there was a brief description about the event that took mm -hmm. place there without glorification of any of Sazi, the Ferdinand or Princip, mm -hmm. um, because it's kind of tricky. So there is a little museum right behind that wall that people can see and be focused on uh, what happened. Not, not about who was right or wrong mm -hmm. in all of that, but what happened. So, so, but in Sarajevo, you can go to the spot of the assassination, mm -hmm. and right there, there's a little museum, yes. and that's the best way to sort of learn about the event is to go for, to that yes, museum. Yes, for the beginning. And for everything else, is the best would be to go to the local libraries. They have books in different languages mm -hmm. about that and different interpretations of the of the same event. By the way, Amir, there's been uh, three wars in Sarajevo, I think, yeah. uh, this last century. Less, yeah, and less and uh, 
Talk just a bit about what's left from the uh, the siege of Sarajevo just in the last generation. What what would we see today from the civil war that that happened after Yugoslavia broke up? Well, that war, like all the other wars that happened there, were imported and orchestrated somewhere outside of uh, Sarajevo and Bosnia. And for that, um, I would recommend a book from a historian Noel Malcolm called The Short History of Bosnia, which uh, describes these things. So, uh, ironically, First World War, we can see the... Um, the, how it worked in ratio. The First World War, there would be like 70 to 80 percent of the soldiers, uh, people who died as the soldiers from Sarajevo and Bosnia versus, let's say, around 20 to 30 percent of the civilians. In the last war, in the siege of Sarajevo, was opposite. Ah. 70 to 80 percent civilians versus ah. 20 to 30 percent of the soldiers, policemen, but uh, that talks about the evolution of the war. So what's left from the siege is mostly the uh, tunnel, underground tunnel, digged during the siege of Sarajevo. is the only safe way to get inside and outside where there is a film with original footage. So you can actually see those tunnels. Tunnel. And are, are there still... Mm-hmm. S- explain what a Sarajevo rose is, and can you still oh, yeah. see these in the roads? Yeah, uh, they're actually in Mostar also, in uh, some other places, but uh, that idea came from one Sarajevo artist uh, right after the siege. There are many uh, small shell prints because the most common weapon used during the siege of Sarajevo was mortar shells. So uh, in a concrete, in a pavement, where they hit the, the ground, when they exploded, there, would be, there were thousands of them anyway. So after the war, the uh, city officials decided they should mark somehow uh, tragic events that led to the massacres of the civilians on the streets, and they decided to fill them with red color, and their shape looks a little bit like a rose. So there's countless craters in the streets mm-hmm. from mortars hitting during, yeah. the, during the siege of Sarajevo, and today, rather than pave them over black, they pave them over red, and you yeah. see the, and these are called the roses of Sarajevo. Yeah, many of them are paved, uh, but thousands of them, I mean, they cannot fill all of them uh, oh. with red color. So they decided only those that caused certain big massacres. Right. And uh, before we called them roses, we used to call them a dragon footprint. Dragon footprint, because they could look like that, look too. Look a little bit like, uh, yeah. you know, like fossil of the dinosaurs footprint, you know. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are joined by Amir Telebacerovic and Ben Curtis talking about the war heritage of former Yugoslavia and how we can uh, experience that today as we uh, mark the 100th anniversary of World War I. Ben, when you think of the European Union in 2014 and where Europe was at just before World War I, how far have we come and, and where, what's your assessment of things as a professor of European history? Yeah, it's so important to think back to the situation of Europe 100 years ago. You know, today you go there, you can pay with one currency across all these countries. You can travel through all these borders without having to show your passport. Uh, things are peaceful. People get along relatively well. And it was not like that 100 years ago. In fact, the reason why it's like that today is partly because of World War I. People associate the European Union and this, the European Unification Project with World War II and the Cold War. But you know what? World War II and the Cold War in themselves came out of World War I in large part. You know, Here in 1914, 100 years ago, Europe ruled the world in so many ways. It was this advanced, artistic, uh, technological civilization that blew itself up. Mm-hmm. And it was still picking up the pieces that led to World War II. And then the crater that was there was filled by the Soviets and the Americans in the Cold War. Mm. And so... The European Union today and the peace that we have in Europe today is partly a response to the memory of what Europe did to itself in World War I. And what's fascinating to me is in World War I, when you think of the carnage on the Western Front between France and Germany, where just unthinkable casualties were occurring day after day after day, most of those people, those French and those German people, had never met another person from that other country. Hard to imagine today. And today we've come full circle. I mean, there's a Erasmus program in the European Union. Explain what that is mm-hmm. and why. Yeah, I mean, it allows uh, young people to study at university level in a bunch of different countries, different European countries. And that's part of this idea of building bonds amongst people. And one thing I would say to people listening and to people thinking about going to this area is the peace of the European Union and the prosperity and security that it has helped provide has not fully reached the Balkans. And some of the problems associated with World War I are still there in the Balkans today. It's a fascinating place to travel. It's a fascinating place to connect to this history. And World War I, especially for North Americans, I think, tends to get overlooked in favor of the heroic image of World War II. But World War I has as many stories of heroism, tragedy, suffering as World War II does. And I would really urge people in this centenary year of the start of World War I mm-hmm. to read a book, to think about what happened, in the, even the less known parts like the Balkans where it's fascinating. And Amir, you've, unlike the rest of us here, you've actually lived through a war. You've, you've, you've heard the bombs. You've seen people killed. 
What is your feeling now as we think back on 100 years ago since World War I and you think back on how Sarajevo came out of the, the horrible civil war and the siege of Sarajevo? Are you hopeful? What, what do you see in the future for the people of Bosnia? Um, first of all, many people who survived, they don't like to call it civil war. Because, you know, when you say civil war, it gives you idea like everybody was killing everybody, mm-hmm. which is not always the case, you know, like it was pretty much many of these things that happened were organized. Mm-hmm. And I witnessed that. I know how it worked anyway. So I survived the siege of Sarajevo about three and a half years as many other people. And, um, well, my feeling when it comes to this so-called marking or celebrating, I'm not sure how they're going to do that uh, in June this year, 100 years since assassination and beginning of the World War One. It's a little tricky. Uh, I was trying to explore the story as a journalist, and I couldn't get the proper answers about what uh, some embassies, EU embassies in Sarajevo, actually they're planning to organize that. Mm-hmm. Not, not even the Sarajevo government so much. They're planning to organize this event in some, I would say, a little bizarre way. Like, what, I'm not sure what is their idea behind it. Uh, it sounds like they just want to mark it, but at the same time, the way uh, they're planning to do that seems like celebration. So there's mm-hmm. nothing to celebrate there. I mean, beginning of the World War One. They said they're planning some, I don't know, some kind of um, program, competitions, firework. Yeah, it's, uh, hard, it's hard to like celebrate a, the start of a war, but I think yeah. we can celebrate that today, a hundred years later, mm-hmm. we've learned a few lessons from all these wars, and, and I think it's fair to say we know how to live together better now than we did back then. Yeah, hopefully uh, it will be like that, because by now that program is not completely clear what will happen there. Interestingly, one of the, I'm not sure, somebody from the family of Otto von Habsburg is planning to come for that occasion, and at the same time, well... That's why I mentioned earlier, it's still a political question. Some Serbian historians uh, were <laughs> against it, so we're wondering if the member of the Gavrilo Princip's family would come here huh. later at the same time. So, you Whoa. know, history, history repeated in Europe many times, you know. So one of the surviving Habsburgs is still around and potentially invited to the cen- yes, centennial so, celebrations, yeah. and then other people are saying, well, we should invite so an ancestor be, uh, of the assassin. This is very, it's still, there's yeah. a lot of politics. It's very complicated. Yeah, but Ben, wouldn't you say the great triumph of the EU is that we've woven the economies together and that that has been a powerful force for peace? Exactly. I mean, the European Union has made incredible progress and contributions to securing peace and prosperity for most of Europe. And that's one reason why these countries in the Balkans, such as Bosnia-Herzegovina, Serbia, Montenegro, Macedonia, why they want in the European Union, or at least some politicians wow. do. Well, this is one opportunity as we look at the 100th anniversary of World War I where we can give meaning and, and hopefully a, a good result of so many people who gave their lives in these uh, horrific struggles that we can learn to live better together today. Amir Telebacherovic and Ben Curtis, thank you so much for giving us an insight into World War I and our sightseeing as we consider traveling in the former Yugoslavia. Thanks very much. Thank you. Next, we switch gears to get ready for our ritual of summer, the Great American Road Trip. This time, we look at the South, and our detours off the freeways are fueled by Jane and Michael Stern's tips. Their tips are all about finding the tastiest road food around. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Nearly 40 years ago, Jane and Michael Stern came up with the term road food to describe the mouth-watering meals and desserts they found driving across the USA. They've tracked down hundreds of the best local diners, ice cream parlors, and barbecue joints in an endless quest for memorable meals that come complete with an authentic local atmosphere. They've just updated their road food guide with even more regional favorites that are guaranteed to make you glad you drove right past those fast food chains on the interstate. And they're with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to take your calls at 877-333-7425 and to share their tips for their favorite road food across the South. Jane and Michael, good to have you back. Great to be here, Rick. Terrific. Thanks, Rick. Now, you guys have been uh, bringing out your road food guide since the late 1970s. What edition is this? This is the ninth edition of Road Food. Ninth edition. Now, how does it change? You've been doing it for so many decades, uh, and you brought out a new edition. How can you improve on it? Well, each edition gets bigger, and of course, each edition so we've do got we. to go. <laughs> a very good point, Rick. <laughs> okay, so each one gets bigger, and of course, we bring it up to date. You know, if a restaurant changes or changes its specialties or goes out of business, then we excise it. But in this edition, we've got something brand new, and that is the Road Food Honor Roll. 
Ooh. And that is 100 of the very best regional restaurants from coast to coast, the essential road food restaurants, the creme de la creme, so if you will. So this is the first time you've gone up from 700 to 900 places listed, and then you've chosen the 100 very best. What was that like? How did you choose the 100 best? It was torture. Basically, every one of these 900 restaurants is a place that we think is fantastic and everyone ought to eat at. But what we tried to do is to pick 100 restaurants that just epitomized the cuisine of where they happen to be. I mean, the very best place to get Creole food yeah. in New Orleans, the best fried chicken in all the South. I mean, that was our criteria to pick the best, most exemplary restaurant wherever we were. Now, that's interesting because when I write my guidebooks, of course, there are good restaurants and there are better restaurants, but it's not as simple as that. You don't want necessarily the best restaurant. You want the best restaurant that connects you with the local culture in your travels because when you travel in the South, you want something from the South. I was just traveling in North Dakota, and I was amazed at how much fun local cuisine there is in North Dakota, and, and that would be high on my priority, and I'd, I'd want a resource like yours to be sure I knew what not to miss. Well, that's exactly the point. Is Of course, it's about delicious food, but it's also about the way it's served and what people think about it. One of the road food honor roll restaurants, for example, is Bowen's Island, which is an oyster roast outside of Charleston. And this is the most informal kind of restaurant. It's an old-fashioned oyster roast. The oysters are cooked under burlap on a fire, and they are quite literally served to you using a garden shovel. They shovel <laughs> up a bunch of these cooked oysters and toss them onto your table, and you just eat to your heart's content. <laughs> Needless to say, it's not a fancy restaurant. There's no maitre d', there's no menu, but it's just, if you like oysters, it's heaven. Now, you guys have been doing this for 35 years, if my math is correct here, and you just yes. sound as enthusiastic about it as ever. Do you ever kind of go... Oh, another oyster shack. We've got to eat no, all of these. No, no, we never do. And part of it is because we kind of like to get on our, our soapbox. We had a, a friend who just went to France for the first time, and I asked her where she ate, and she said, every time we passed a McDonald's, we stopped at it. And I thought, and you were in France? <laughs> and you, you know, and that's enough of, of a crime. But people, when they travel in the United States— they eat at the highway rest stops where five miles off the highway, there may be the greatest regional food you will ever find. So we want people to go there. Well, now, and that's interesting because we're going to get into southern food specifics here. But I was on a road trip recently doing a lecture tour heading down to Tallahassee and, and just driving right across the southeast. And what depressed me was at the big intersections, all I saw were chain uh, fast food places. And it, it really sort of indicated to me... It was a poor part of the country, and, and people just, when they go out, they have a Subway sandwich or, or a, a Burger King or something like this. Can you, even in these kind of places where it seems like it's one big depressing strip mall, can you always find an alternative that represents mom-and-pop local cuisine? That's not, sort not, of what our, our life work has been yeah. about. Sometimes it's not so easy. And in fact, sometimes you just don't find it. And that's, that's why road food, I think, has been successful, is that people really need a guide to those places. I'll tell you one trick that we have found that is essential. You don't go to those places near the major intersections. You get off the main road and go through town, I mean, whatever the main right. street of town may be, and hopefully there will be the town cafe where locals exactly. eat. Well, almost everywhere these days, you know, you've got the peripheral road that takes all the traffic, and that would be the new road, and it would have the new strip uh, malls and the fast food places. But if you go into town... That's where you'd find the places that were there before the new road came. Hopefully, And yes. if, if you can't get a copy of Road Food, our greatest tip is go get a haircut because barbers <sighs> in small towns know everything. And, and they, love to talk about and it. And love to talk perfect, about it. Perfect. I'm talking with Jane and Michael Stern. We're talking Road Food. We're celebrating the arrival of their new ninth edition of their book, Road Food. Okay, let's head into the South then. What are the basic foundations of good road food in the Deep South? Well, let's start with fried chicken. Uh, <laughs> not that there isn't excellent fried chicken elsewhere, and believe me, people from Kansas City are going to slit my throat when I say that the South is where you want to go for great fried chicken because there is superb fried chicken in Kansas City. But throughout the South, what's interesting there is sort of what I was saying before about barbecue. There are such different styles of fried chicken. Mm -hmm. There's the pan-fried chicken. Nashville, for example, has a style of fried chicken all its own. They call it hot fried chicken. And when I say hot, I'm not referring to the temperature. I'm referring to the spice level. I think this is an interesting issue, the idea of what do we mean when we want hot chicken? And John is calling in right now from Pittsburgh, oh, Pennsylvania. Okay. John, what's your take on spicy chicken? 
Well, let me tell you, Rick, I've been to Prince's Hot Chicken in Nashville oh, yeah. many times. The there first time I went, I walked up and the lady said, what's your order? And they make everything to order. There's no chicken laying around just to give you. And I said, I'd like, you know, a hot quarter. She said, is this your first time? I said, yes, it is. <laughs> she goes, you're not getting hot. You're getting medium. <laughs> the medium was flamethrower hot. <laughs> but and so did, I, Was it good? Best fried chicken I've ever had. Really? And I think, I think they use cayenne pepper, and they dredge it and dredge it and dredge it, you know, to different levels. And well, also hot sauce, because yeah. after it's fried, it's dipped into That's hot sauce. That's the secret. They fry the chicken first. By the way, Prince's is on the road food honor roll, one of the top 100. Oh, there you go. They fry the chicken first, and then they quickly baste it with this hot sauce and different levels of hot sauce. As the caller said, medium is ferocious. I, I can't <laughs> imagine somebody eating hot or extra hot. Jane and Michael, when you go to a restaurant like Prince's and you go, man, this is good, do you then follow up by letting them know who you are and going back into the kitchen and asking them questions so you can explain to people why this is so distinctive? We wait till after we write them up, huh. and then we will send them a copy of the book. But do you, you ask know, right there, even if they, you don't let them know who you are, do you do? you? Yeah, do? we try and pry some secrets loose. Off, it's very hard to get them. Though. Is right, that right? So you can't questions. just be Joe Blow in a, in a little roadside restaurant and say, how do you make this chicken so tasty? They really... Don't they're not comfortable telling you that? The answer to that is we cook it just right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, I mean, in general, especially for recipes like fried chicken, where basically it's a very simple recipe, but you know the subtleties are what make it different and special. A lot of cooks are not willing to share their recipes. Right. Especially in Nashville, where there are probably very eight or ten different yes. restaurants that all compete to right. make the very best. <laughs> John, thanks for the appetizing tips there. Thank you. Happy eating. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. And before we leave fried chicken, give me your insights into chicken with waffles and the syrup. To me, the syrup is what really gets it over the top. I love the syrup when it comes to chicken with waffles. Well, that's a major issue. And in fact, you had earlier talked about uh, going to uh, Tallahassee. There's a place in Tallahassee called Oleans, uh -huh. which is a great breakfast place. The specialty there is chicken and waffles. And the big issue is, do you want it with syrup or do you want it with gravy? Uh -huh. And it can go either way. But the syrup has some kind of liquor. Is it brandy in it, or what's in the syrup? It differs from place to place. We were just bourbon. That's it. Bourbon. It has bourbon. Bourbon. Oh, that makes anything fabulous. Oh, I've had syrup, and I just go, "What is with this?" And they go, <laughs> "It's bourbon. fabulous." We were just in Eatonville, Florida, at the Zora Neale Hurston Festival, and we went to a place in a little soul food cafe. And they had red velvet waffles <laughs> with fried chicken and bourbon sauce on it. Oh, oh that was God. mighty good. Oh, nice. Katie's calling in from Vancouver in British Columbia. Katie, you've been south of the border and doing some uh, eating on your road tripping? Yeah, uh, my family and I are going on a road trip next month. We're starting in Atlanta, driving down to Tampa, going um, over to St. Augustine and up to Savannah. And I was uh -huh. wondering if there are any special restaurants I shouldn't miss or any good yes. tips for any, anything on the honor roll. Now Jane and Michael have the honor roll, so I bet you can yes. just kind of go right through your honor roll list. Well, I'll tell you, on the honor roll in Atlanta, you want to go to Mary Max Tea Room. It's been there since mid-20th century, and it's an old-fashioned Southern-style tea room. You can get a bowl of pot liquor there, which if you don't know pot liquor, it's it's greens and all the liquid that you cook the greens in. It's the most salubrious kind of soup you will ever have. And they're famous fried chicken. Mary Max is famous for its fried chicken, exactly. Oh. In Tampa, you want to go to a place called La Terracita. It's a coffee shop with mostly counter seating, Cuban sandwich, and cafe con leche. Mm. Uh, terrific. St. Augustine has its own style of chowder made with datal peppers, which are grown only in and around St. Augustine. Very spicy clam chowder. They also have fabulous shrimp. That's like the shrimping capital of the United States around there. And Savannah, you want to go to, uh, what's the great boarding house in Savannah? Mrs. Wilkes Mrs. Boarding Wilkes House. Boarding house. It's like old-fashioned boarding house style eating past the plate to your neighbor and a boarding house reach is perfectly acceptable at the table. So talk more a little bit about the boarding houses. There's actually still restaurants that sort of uh, try to keep this style of, of serving food alive, or, or what is Yes, there are a handful. Where are you they retro really places great. intentionally? I mean, it's just sort of a gimmick? No, no, or? they've, oh, no, they've no. existed for many decades. And uh -huh. there's one in Macomb, Mississippi called the Dinner Bell. And what's great is that 
you sit at big communal tables, so you're always seated with strangers, maybe big, 10 big or 12 round, right. round tables uh, that have, like, Lazy Susans in the middle. Oh, nice. And all the food is set out in the Lazy Susan, and you spin the Lazy Susan and grab what you want. And what's great is these are always all-you-can-eat affairs. So if the big bowl of biscuits starts getting low, they bring out a new bowl of biscuits. And now, you would just these, keep— would, would the people sitting at this table sharing this Lazy Susan— would they be locals that whose parents probably came there also, or would they be Absolutely. tourists coming through? Well, it, that's what's great. It's a combination of locals who have been eating there since they were children and their right. families, as well as tourists, because it's a it's a great opportunity for people to share their experiences on the road. I can't tell you how many great tips we have gotten at those roundtable you know, dining. You know what I remember? At, we were at the Mendenhall Hotel in Mendenhall, Mississippi, and as I often do, I spilled a bunch of food on my shirt and the local who was sitting next to me owned the dry cleaner yeah. and he <laughs> he dry cleaned my shirt for free which i thought was quite <laughs> that, wonderful that's going local hey katie thanks for your call thanks very much bye-bye jane and michael stern are taking us around the south right now on travel with rick steves with their top picks for classic american road food the ninth edition of their classic road food guide is out and it's been newly expanded to cover 900 of what they call the best barbecue joints, lobster shacks, ice cream parlors, highway diners, and other authentic comfort food establishments across the USA. You can find photos of their favorite dishes, reviews from fellow diners, and self-guided road food touring itineraries on their website. It's roadfood.com. And we're looking for your road food tips to share with us at 877-333-RICK. Rob's calling in from Gainesville in Georgia. Rob, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I'm a big fan of road food and uh, Rick Steve. Thank you. Double pleasure. I worked in South Carolina, and they are very proud of uh, being home to four different types of barbecue. <laughs> what, what are your favorite uh, barbecue restaurants and your favorite styles? you know, here in the state, or if you have to, across the border in North Carolina. So Georgia, obviously, is the best place then, right, Rob? Actually, I wish. Ah, South Carolina. (laughs) I I think Rob is right. South Carolina and North Carolina, for Southern-style barbecue, are are the place. We we won't even talk about Texas, because that's a whole other world of barbecue. Oh, I've got memories. Oh, of the brisket and sausage in Texas? It's stupendous. But that's Um, different. Martinez is in Valder. Joel's just off the interstate. Oh. And Salt Lick and Driftwood. Okay, well, let's get back to the Carolinas. Personally, I what I like is the kind of barbecue that they have in central South Carolina with that kind of it's whole hog pork. You know, it's not just the shoulder, it's the whole hog. You get like the crisp bits of skin and the very tender parts with a slight, very subtle kind of mustardy barbecue sauce. It's not at all ketchupy and it's not vinegary like you'd get up in, in parts of North Carolina, but it's got that kind of mustard twang that I think goes so great with all the great side dishes that they always serve. Mm, that sounds good. Mm, okay. Any uh, any examples of that? Dukes. That like There's to recommend? A, there are many restaurants named Dukes because the Dukes family has been in barbecue forever, but the Dukes outside of Aiken, South Carolina, it's actually near the Georgia border, had one of the best buffets I've ever been to in terms of barbecue. There you okay. go, Rob. Thanks for your call. Okay, thanks. Take care. Enjoy your barbecue. I will. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating our way across the United States with Jane and Michael Stern. Their new edition of Road Food is out. And Jane and Michael, we just got a a short time left, but I'm going to just list a a few specialties in the South. And if you can just give me your thumbnail take on each of these when we're traveling in the Deep South. Pig sandwiches. Memphis. The pig sandwich is actually invented in Memphis. And what you mean by a pig sandwich is chopped barbecue, with some really spicy, zesty, kind of sweet, hot sauce topped with cool coleslaw in a bun. Ah, nice. That's a pig sandwich. How about Cajun boudin sausage? Ah, we're talking about southern Louisiana here. And what's cool about boudin is that it's made by probably several hundred different little butchers, slaughterhouses, Mm. grocery stores. There's no big name in boudin. And all of these places serve it by the link, and most of them have no place to eat, so you buy a link. Go out to your car and eat it off the dashboard. And there's nice. Boudin Blanc, Boudin Rouge, and Boudin Noir, which has blood in it, but it's quite good. And then what state do we focus on that? It's just Louisiana? That's southern Louisiana. All yep. right. Creamy grits. Ah, well, okay. Creamy grits are important. It's important to know many people who go south have grits for breakfast on the side of their eggs, and they're all kind of watery and bland, and why would anyone like them? Well, if you go to South Carolina, especially around Charleston, you get what they call creamy grits, where they're long-cooked, 
not with water, but with milk or cream. So they become as rich as the best polenta you you ever mm. ate. And they could be mm. plain, just buttery, cheesy, or best of all, served as the foundation for a plate of barbecued shrimp. And Jane, when you're looking for a Creole po'boy, what do you do? I go to New Orleans, of course. Gosh, there there are so many wonderful ones. I think mothers in New Orleans I love because they have something called a debris sandwich, or as they say it down there, debris. And it's basically all the burnt ends, and it's the junk or the stuff from the roast that falls at the bottom of the pan, and it's scraped up and put on a length of French bread, and oh, it is just so wonderful. That sounds good. That was a highlight for me when I was in New Orleans also. How about meat and three? That's a whole style of eating throughout the Mid-South, where you go to the restaurant, there's a list of maybe two or three meats, and at least a dozen, sometimes 20 or 30 different vegetables. So you pick your meat, let's say fried chicken, and then you pick from among collard greens, pole beans, black-eyed peas, macaroni and cheese, of course, my favorite mm, southern mm, vegetable. Mm. Spoon bread. <laughs> Spoon bread, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, now we've been uh, talking road food with Jane and Michael Stern, uh, kind of celebrating the, the new edition, the ninth edition of Road Food, listing 900 places to pull off the highway and really get a little tasty dose of the local culture. Let's finish this discussion off uh, letting each of you, Jane and Michael, share your best dessert. When you're on a road trip and doing your hard work, as you've been doing for 30 years now, where do you pull off and where do you want to get your best dessert in the South? Well, since we're talking about the South, I would want to pull off in Atlanta and go to a place called the Silver Skillet. It's an old-fashioned 1950s diner. Oh, that was diner. mine. You stole it. <laughs> <I> stole... <laughs> right. Well, okay, what we would both have there is the lemon icebox pie. It may not sound so special, but once you've had, this is dessert of the gods. It is so good. The problem is they make one or two of these per day, and oftentimes by 1130 in the morning, they're out of it. Jane and Michael Stern, you guys, your enthusiasm for this, it's inspiring. I want to get on the road and just go somewhere and work up an appetite and, and pull out your book. Thanks so we, much. We have and, room uh, in our backseat. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon, okay? Bye-bye, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to our colleagues at WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut for studio help this week. You can listen again on demand and find guest information in the details for each week's show. You'll find it in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries, all designed to make Europe's rich history and great art come to life. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.